0: Welcome to Hey, Remember the 80s. This is Carrie. I'm Joe. Please remember, we're not professional podcasters or music critics. We're just virginal brides filing past his tomb and talking about 80s music. So give us a break.
1: Sure, sis. (laughs) Welcome, Carrie. Thank you. Welcome to you. And welcome to any new listeners. And loyal listeners, we found some in Brandon, Mississippi, Cerritos, California, and Sapporo, Japan. Hello.
0: Hello, friends. Please look at our Facebook, facebook.com slash HRT80S, or our Twitter at HRT80S. I don't know what you'll find there, but take a look.
1: (laughs) There'll be be some stuff.
0: We lurk. (laughs) We lurk. Yeah, that's true. Alright Joe, for tidbits we have to address the mm-hmm. Rock Hall inductees which were announced this week.
1: Feel like it happened so fast.
0: I know. I've I've said everything I can say about the structure of the Rock Hall and my confusion around it, so I'm I'm not going to comment on that any longer. Let's just say that from the ballot this year we've got Duran Duran, Pat Benatar, Dolly Parton, The Eurythmics, Lionel Richie, Carly Simon and Eminem hmm <laughs> I am particularly excited this year for Pat Benatar and for the Eurythmics. Same. I am particularly disappointed for Devo. Those are my thoughts about that part of it. What do you think, Joe?
1: Well, I surprised myself when I told Dave that the announcement was happening like the next day. And he's like, well, who do you want? And I said, well, the Eurythmics, duh. And he's like, what about Pat Benatar? And I was like, oh, yeah. I don't know. She's been up for it so many times, I yeah. would lose track, is she in, is she not? But super happy she got it. I kind of knew Kate Bush would not, Yeah. so I'm not too upset.
0: Here's what I'll say. This week on Vulture, there was an article that was essentially an interview with two anonymous Rock Hall voters, and they started off talking about Pat Benatar, and it was just really funny Essentially, what I remember is that one of the voters was like, oh, yeah, Pat Benatar, she totally deserves it. She's awesome. Blah, 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 blah. blah. She had so many great hits. And then the second anonymous voter was like, this is exactly what's wrong with the Rock Hall. Pat Benatar didn't change anything for anybody, like remove her from history. And there's no difference. And it was just so glaring that two different people that are voting for the same exact thing have such disparate opinions. I hate it. I know. Sincerely, in that moment, I was just like, this is it. This is the problem. They both had their specific ideas about what they were voting for, but they were so different that to me, I was just like, I do not understand this as an institution. There has to be someone that is providing some kind of clarity for these people, but apparently not. And again, I (laughs) said I wasn't going to speak on that anymore. So that's the end of that um mm-hmm. here's what i was excited to hear the musical excellence entries which are the ones that you know <laughs> kind of like the perpetual losers that they fit in usually under this other category judas priest i'm not excited for that fine who cares but i was excited that jimmy jam and terry lewis are being that's great inducted via yeah, the musical I love excellence that. that's amazing and then the Ahmet Erdogan Award, which is kind of like legacy award for executives or producers, etc. Um, Sylvia Robinson of Sugar Hill Records is being inducted via that award. And I think that's a great selection, too. Um, also, Jimmy Iovine, the famous producer, who I like. I know we talked a-, a while ago about the documentary that was on HBO called The Defiant Ones about him and Dr. Dre. And I really enjoyed that and gave me some new perspective on him and appreciation for him as a producer over the years. So those were good choices, I think.
1: I can't believe I never watched that documentary.
0: Yeah, you really should.
1: It's really good. I know. There's so many, too. We're going to have to save that for a tidbit next week, I think. All the documentaries that are coming out about acts that we've covered. No room for tidbits. More tidbits. <laughs> we've got a big episode this week.
0: Yeah, let's get right to it then, Joe. We are talking about the Cruel World Festival. This weekend at the Rose Bowl in LA, there is a festival called Cruel World. And I think this was supposed to happen way back in 2020. And it was canceled. And now it finally is happening. And it's got a slew of great classic alternative artists, so we thought we would take the opportunity to talk about some of them. And shout out to listener La Barvados who let us know on Twitter she is going. So can't wait to hear back from her about what happens and her thoughts on it.
1: I'm oh, so jealous.
0: Yes, You know, when I was trying to think of her Twitter name or whatever, I just kept thinking Lady B. (laughs) So I hope she enjoys that. I always think of you as Lady B now. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh. La (laughs) Barberna. Anyways, we are going to start at the bottom. You know how they list acts for festivals and they kind of like go from the bottom from least well-known to most well-known. Well, this Mm -hmm. list is wild because towards the bottom we've got Missing Persons in Berlin two acts that I would argue were huge in the 80s, but I guess someone has to be at the bottom. And we talked about missing persons many times. Go hear more about them in episode 124. Let's get into Berlin a little bit, though. They started in Orange County, California in the mid-70s. After getting rid of their lead singer, the group placed an ad through a musician's contact service, and Terry Nunn answered, They released their first single, A Matter of Time, in
1: 1979.
0: Terry Nunn then left the group to pursue an acting career and all the record labels that had wanted to sign the band Lost Interest. John Crawford, the band's bassist, moved on to a new group. However, he still had songs that did not fit with his new band and were better for Terry's voice, so he asked her a year later if she wanted to record them as a side project. One of those songs was The Metro, which is number two on my most recent Top 40 of the 80s, The Metro was such a success that Berlin went from side project to main event and the band officially reformed to record an EP titled Pleasure Victim, which was released in late 1982 and sold 25,000 copies, a big amount for an independent record. The song Sex, I'm a dot dot dot, was specifically written in order to get the attention of and airplay on LA station K-Rock. Inspired by I Feel Love by Donna Summer, the song was banned by many radio stations. It peaked at 62 on the Hot 100, but went to 8 on the dance chart and 10 on the rock chart. This was after Geffen Records signed the band and re-released Pleasure Victim as an album in January of 1983. The band ironically broke up in 1987 after their biggest success, the number one hit Take My Breath Away. Over the years, Nunn fronted her own version of Berlin while the other members toured without her, but apparently now they are all merged and performing together
1: again. Interesting.
0: What are your big thoughts on Berlin,
1: Joe? You know, I didn't realize that she left to become an actress and then came back. And then they broke up so soon after that, I feel like, what a shame. Mm-hmm. I wish they had put out more music in the late 80s. Yeah. Maybe early 90s, you know.
0: They're interesting. I really like a lot of their songs, but they're just kind of one of those bands that like I never think of. You know, obviously I love The Metro, but I don't know, it's just one of those bands that kind of got lost in the mix between new wave and rock, like maybe it wasn't really entirely clear where they were supposed to be, not that they had to be in either of those places. But anyways, I don't like the Sex I'm a dot dot you dot don't. song. No.
1: I think it's funny we always riff on it in the house when it's time. <laughs>
0: That's fine. Yeah, that's a good way to handle it. I just think it it does sound like an exact ripoff of I Feel Love. And it's silly. It's really silly sounding to me. I
1: remember the first time I heard it was at like a bar or club in San Francisco. And I had to Shazam it. And when I saw the title, I was like, what? I think I texted it to you. I was like, what is this? Come on.
0: I just find it strange what they've done over the years in terms of if you saw Berlin playing somewhere, whether it was Terry Nunn and a bunch of randos or whether it was the rest of the group. So I'm glad at least they got their shit together in that (sighs) way.
1: (laughs) How'd you feel about the song Matter of Time?
0: thought it was fine
1: I felt like it was missing something yeah I was like this could be anybody didn't have the Berlin sound
0: no it sounded more kind of straight down the middle than what they would eventually end up doing more synth stuff but yeah some really great songs from Berlin but I guess overall I don't understand their overarching
1: trajectory yeah Richard Blade probably really (laughs) did a number on her right yeah she was like I'm done Up next, Carrie, is the band called Gene Loves Jezebel, or rather, Jay Aston's Gene Loves Jezebel. Formed by identical twins Jay and Michael Aston, Gene Loves Jezebel was named for a 1951 song by Gene Vincent called Jezebel. Okay. <laughs> Besides the Aston twins, the group constantly changed members from 1981 to 1985. They released a number of singles that only reached the UK Indie Chart until 1986, when they finally began charting on the upper reaches of the official UK chart. At this time, Geffen Records started distributing their music in the US and they became popular on college radio stations. Their song Desire broke through on K Rock and was voted the sixth favorite song of 1986 by the K Rock listeners. Here's a clip. Their fourth album, The House of Dolls, was released in late 1987, and the song The Motion of Love became their first hit to hit the Hot 100, peaking at number 87. After that album, Michael Aston went solo, but the rest of the band continued on. The brothers came back together in the 90s, but eventually disagreed about the composition of the band. Jay wanted to bring certain members back into the fold, while Michael wanted to continue on with folks he had worked with in his solo career. Michael tried to continue on using the Gene Loves Jezebel name without Jay, but Jay and some other members sued, and eventually it shook out like this. In the U.S., Michael tours as Gene Loves Jezebel, but in the U.K. as Michael Astin's Gene Loves Jezebel. In the U.K., Jay tours as Gene Loves Jezebel, but in the U.S. as Jay Astin's Gene Loves Jezebel. Carrie, this is like the trope of an 80s TV show sitcom where two twins get in a fight and they put... <laughs> taped down the middle of the room only with like much bigger stakes
0: it's so stupid it's 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 real stupid stupid. i mean why wouldn't they just at this point two or both of them under gene loves jezebel who cares
1: yeah put it aside how i mean how long has this been going on you know
0: i don't know it's silly It's very silly, but getting back to the music, or actually, let me say this about Mm Gene Loves Jezebel, which I think I remembered seeing like their videos on MTV back in the day. They have this really weird aesthetic. They look like a hairband. They have big, huge hair I'm picturing them wearing long scarves tied around their <laughs> heads and stuff. I just remember seeing Gene loves Jezebel back in the day and thinking they were like a Cinderella or a poison. I was gonna say Cinderella. Yeah.
1: Just hard rock, hair rock.
0: Yeah. And so I honestly think I poo-pooed them for that reason uh-huh. and never thought about them. But desire I think is a classic and I love it. It's
1: good. Yeah.
0: And it is funny for me to remember like what I thought about them back in
1: the day. <laughs> See, I have something similar. Seen the name a ton, you know, in magazines. I never saw a video or heard a song. But when I listened to them this week on the playlist, they sound exactly like I thought they were going to, mm-hmm. but also really awesome. <laughs> I liked their songs the best out of the whole playlist. Oh, really? I think I listened to this playlist like three or four times. I loved it, oh, and good. especially Desire. I liked that, but I really love the motion of love.
0: Interesting. Yes, I love
1: it. Love, love it.
0: Mm, I find that strange. I don't care for the motion of love. I think it's kind (laughs) of silly.
1: Just when he does that really high part, I love it. It's really unexpected. Now, did I tell the story about My Memory of the Band is tied to an MTV special from like 2000? When they used to do like behind the scenes of like the VMAs or Spring Break. It was like VMAs uncensored or uncovered or something oh, like that.
0: okay, yeah. And
1: then the well was about to run dry, so they <laughs> did one that was all about New Year's Eve specials, right? And okay. they showed one from maybe 88 or 89 and Jamie Gertz was hosting. And they were like making fun of her, and they put on this like blooper reel where she had to keep introducing, and coming up after the break, Jean loves Jezebel. And then like she would do it like, Coming up after the break, Jean loves Jezebel. Like <laughs> over and over and over. And the words lost all meaning. And I'm like, why are they shitting on her? She was just doing her best.
0: Weren't those live? Maybe they taped them eventually.
1: Oh, maybe they were showing like for the different coasts? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was a promos or something. Mm-hmm.
0: Anyways, that's amazing. I love that.
1: I'd love to ask what she thinks of the band. <laughs>
0: She's probably like, no, I never want to say those words again.
1: She's married to a billionaire. Did you know that?
0: She is? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, and they
1: own like the Atlanta Hawks, maybe?
0: Oh my gosh, what? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. You go Jamie Gertz. Yeah. I feel like I just saw a picture of her this week. Was she in that group of pictures I sent you from the Pretty in Pink premiere?
1: I think so, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: I feel like she's kind of been floating around. A small diversion. Are you excited to read the Jennifer Gray book?
1: I haven't even really put it on my book radar. I would yeah. say
0: I don't know. I kind of am a little bit, but there's been too many salacious stories out Leet, there, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. You know, this is what I hate is when they do press for their books. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't want to, you're going to see the headlines like Jennifer Gray told us this and this, and I'm like, well, you know, save it for the book. <laughs> I know. I
0: know. <laughs> Anyways, she's got a lot of strange stuff. I didn't know she was apparently engaged to Johnny Depp for a short time, which I was like, okay, and that's what I was, I read a little article this week about her thoughts on Johnny Depp, and I was just like, she lived a life. Mm -hmm. Anyways, getting back to Cruel Worlds, and moving up the list of artists, we're at Public Image Limited, John Lydon, aka Johnny Rotten left the Sex Pistols in 1978 and wanted to get even more anti-rock than the Pistols. Here's a funny little anecdote I found out. He went on a trip to Jamaica with Richard Branson right around this time. And, of course, Richard Branson was the head of Virgin Records. They were going to scout reggae musicians Branson also invited Devo in the hopes of forming a connection so that Leiden would join Devo. What? <laughs> I know, that did not
1: work out. And Devo had been together for like eight years at this point, right? I know, I don't
0: like, know Like, they're what, just gonna yeah. be like, we
1: had so much fun <laughs> in Jamaica, we want you to be in our band. Here's an upside down flower pot.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess their sensibilities kind of fit together, but I don't know, that was strange. So anyways... Leiden went back to the UK and formed Pill instead with his friend Ja Wobble, who shared an interest in world music. They added more members and released their first single, also called Public Images, in October of 1978. (laughs) song was written while Lydon was still a member of the Sex Pistols. It was about Malcolm McLaren and his manipulation of Lydon and the other band members. The song went to number nine in the UK. On May 17th, 1980, they performed it on American Bandstand and it right. devolved into chaos. Lydon gave up on lip syncing midway through the song and just pulled a bunch of audience members on stage to dance. Dick Clark wasn't mad about it, though. He named it to his list of top 100 all-time American bandstand performances.
1: I gotta see that list.
0: I tried to find that list. Yeah, this was a weird oblique reference, but I couldn't find the actual list. I did watch the performance. It was wild.
1: I could see why he would pick something like this if you're gonna watch thousands of people just mime.
0: This would be fun. We've got to take a break here, though, Joe, because you texted me when you were listening to the playlist, and you said Public Image was a candidate for HRT 80s court, and I'm dying to know what
1: that's all about. Mm, Did I say that? (laughs) No, it's This Is Not A Love Song is the one.
0: All right, well, then let's get into that. 1983, they scored their biggest hit on the UK charts with This Is Not a Love Song. Someone at the record label suggested Lydon write a simple love song, and this was his response. <laughs> So this is not a love song. This is a song that I discovered via... I've talked about this CD before. It was a compilation called Nevermind the Mainstream, MTV's 120 Minutes.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Yeah. And this version that we just heard a clip from is not the single version that was released in the UK. It's this version with added horns. And so when I heard the single version... I was like, this is not the right song, and then learned, actually, the version that I have known and loved over all the years is this kind of bizarro version with these horns added to it. But there's my thoughts on it. I really love that song.
1: (laughs) It is very good. And I did text you, and I'm like, this is a case for HRT80S Court, but it's been downgraded to maybe it could just be a coincidence.
0: Okay, well, fill us in, Joe.
1: Immediately, 100%, I'm like, this sounds just like Basement Jack's Where's Your Head At.
0: How familiar are you with that song? You know, just enough that I've heard it, you know, over the years probably haven't heard it in quite some time i get what you're saying i get the vibe yeah i get what you're saying but i don't think it's a direct lift
1: i did at some point look someone did sample this this is not a love song but it was a song i had not heard of
0: Ah, interesting yeah this is a classic to me i like it I can't believe that the song isn't huge in terms of like, you know, getting played on first wave all the time and right. all this kind of stuff, like kind of one of those classic alternative songs that you hear everywhere.
1: What's the um, name of the song we play in the attic by them?
0: I think we play a couple different ones. We play Rise. and I think
1: that's my favorite one yeah. is the Rise that's like, dee, 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 dee. he's like talking.
0: Yes. Yes, I okay. think so.
1: Obviously, I'm obsessed with that song. I know everything about it.
0: (laughs) They're good. I really like John Lydon's voice for whatever reason. And I really like his artistry. (laughs) We've talked before about he's kind of a pill in person (laughs) or whatever. Yeah,
1: that's the only reason I knew him in the 80s and 90s was just that he was going to show up to some interview and talk shit on somebody
0: yeah, exactly.
1: That's all I knew. So mm-hmm. hearing these songs on this playlist, I was like, I really like them.
0: Yeah. Well, much like Gene Loves Jezebel, band members of Hill came and went over the years. Lydon was the only concert presence, but notable members over the years include former Susie and the Banshees guitarist John McGosh and guitar legend Steve Vai. Once the Modern Rock chart was created here in the States, they had six different singles hit that chart in 1989 and 1990, including the number one, Disappointed. Nice. The last time we talked about John Lydon was...
1: The masked singer appearance? Well,
0: that and that was kind of connected to... He was trying to stop Pistol which is a Hulu miniseries yes. about the Sex Pistols. And just FYI, I wanted to mention to everyone that comes out at the end of this month. There's so many shows. I know. <laughs> so many shows. I know.
1: Carrie, let's go to church.
0: Take me to church, Joe.
1: <laughs> Isn't that a Hozier song? Yes. <laughs> let's talk about the band, The Church. Down Under in Australia, bassist Steve Kilby and guitarist Peter Copps First played together in a glam rock band in the mid 70s and then with other groups before coming back together in 1980 to form The Church with drummer Nick Ward. They then added Marty Wilson Piper on second guitar. Their first demo garnered the attention of Chris Gilby, who had recently formed his own record label and signed the group. The band's second single from their debut album The Unguarded Moment reached the top 40
0: so long long between mirages i knew you'd find me drinking tell those men with horses for hearts that they jobs don't make me bleed
1: they only make me feel like shrinking in kilby wrote the song with his then wife michelle parker The Australian magazine Roadrunner said that the song ripped off the riff from the Beatles' Ticket to Ride, but also, it's what you do with stolen goods that counts, and the church do good things with this.
0: Did you hear that?
1: No, I didn't. I'm never thinking of Beatles songs, ever. (laughs) Okay. No, I just mean I'm not one of those. Mm -hmm. I barely know any.
0: Yeah. That thought has never come to me independently. After I read this and listened to it with that thought, I was like, yeah, Mm. I hear it. He's Mm -hmm. right. I think Ticket to Ride is in there somewhere. But I also do agree with him that they're doing something fun with it. So I like it.
1: Yeah. The band continued to hit the upper reaches of the Australian charts for the next couple years, but they never broke through in the UK or the US until 1988 when their single Under the Milky Way was released. Kilby had divorced Parker by this time, and he wrote this one with his girlfriend, Karen Jansen, who was a Swedish performer. None of the other members of the band wanted to record it for their fifth album, but the band's manager insisted. Thank goodness, right?
0: Exactly. Oh,
1: love it. And it's something quite peculiar
0: Something shimmering and white It leads you here. Your Under the
1: this is a, a never skip or never change the I station, know. right? For me, definitely.
0: Yeah. One of those ones, I should be so sick of this song, but... Never? <laughs> yeah, never. Mm-mm.
1: It reached number 90 in the UK, number 24 on the Hot 100, and went all the way to number two on the rock chart. Kilby now says that the song was a blessing and a curse. It led to huge success, but also caused the rest of the band to hate him and get over it, right? Yeah, I guess. Why are they like this?
0: You know, this kind of sounds like a little bit of like the Go-Go's thing, you know, that eventually sort of tore them apart is that beyond maybe not- them not even liking it, they weren't getting royalties from it because mm-hmm. he wrote it with someone else, you know.
1: Write a catchy song, right? <laughs>
0: yeah, I guess you're right.
1: The group has continued to put out albums over the years despite lineup changes. Unsurprisingly, these days, the only original member of the group left is Kilby. Mm-hmm. The Unguarded Moment Love it.
0: Okay, yeah, yeah.
1: He sounds like a British Bright Eyes.
0: Oh, wow. His voice yeah, I like is that. very
1: similar. That one's a little more jangle pop.
0: That's what I was going to say. It sounds so much different to me than Under the Milky Way, because it's definitely more bright and more pop yeah. than Under the Milky Way.
1: Are they the ones that sing Reptile as well?
0: Yes, they are.
1: Oh, that one about the <laughs> lizard and a bathtub or iguana? Yes. Something scary. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah, the church is a band that I don't know anything about them. I mean, right. I never knew any songs by them besides Under the Milky Way, but we play a bunch of them in the attic.
1: And they're all great. Yeah. And then, yes, yeah, so you
0: kind of hear these other ones. I mean, add them to the list, <laughs> you know, in terms of like these bands. And I'm always like, oh, I should listen to more of this band. They Every song I hear from them, I love. But, you know, I just can never get around to any of this. I
1: know. But I feel the same way with the church. I want to go back and find even more songs, because these were all so good. That part in Under the Milky Way, though, with the bagpipes, is that what it is?
0: Oh, I think it is. I don't know if they're exactly or if it's something else intended to ape bagpipes.
1: Mm, It sounds like when Ross is learning the bagpipes on Friends (laughs) and not succeeding...
0: Oh, here's what it is. Okay, I knew I had just read this, because I just looked at bagpipes. Spoiler alert, we might talk about bagpipes in the In the 80s (laughs)
1: music compendium?
0: Yes, but I I have opened up the 80s music compendium. Under bagpipes, there's a whole different section called honorable mentions. These songs sound as if they have bagpipes, but they don't. In some of these songs, the musicians are using an EBO, a device used with electric guitars that makes it sound like bagpipes. And listed there under the Milky Way by the Church. So it's an EBO.
1: EBO, the letter.
0: Yeah, exactly. I'm surprised you know that. That's I a knew M- you were going to say that. REM song.
1: <laughs> and REM is one of those bands I said I was going to add to the playlist, <laughs> and I keep forgetting. So it's all full circle. I used the 80s music compendium to look up instrumental songs that were on the chart in 1985. Because for Charlie's this week, we're doing the bottom 40 of the Hot 100 from May 11th, 1985. And there's an instrumental in there. There were four total for 1985. I'm oh, trying wow. to tease to get people to to listen and see what it is. I will tell you what it's not. <laughs> it's not Axel F. It's not the love theme from St. Elmo's Fire. And it's not Miami Vice
0: oh wow so four different ones are in this bottom count up
1: oh no see now I misspoke oh, okay. the, those I were the ones saying. that hit the hot 100 in 85
0: okay I have a guess I haven't even looked at the list so but I'm not gonna say it no guess I was gonna say the terms of endearment theme which I know we just oh got it, but that was from way earlier not 85
1: I'll just tell you it's
0: oh okay cool We keep (laughs) keep getting diverted. (laughs) It's all right. We are getting towards the top of the list. The font is getting bigger for these band names. We've talked about Echo and the Bunnymen here and there. We covered a solo hit by lead singer Ian McCulloch that hit number one on the modern rock chart late in the decade. We've also talked about his feud with pre-Echo bandmate Julian Cope. But Echo and the Bunnymen formed out of the ashes of A Shallow Madness, that group he was in with Cope. When Cope fired him, McCulloch recruited Will Sargent and Les Patterson, and Echo and the Bunnymen was born. They had some early difficulties, including getting booed off the stage in London when opening for Madness, which is not a good fit. (laughs) Yeah, who
1: booked this? (laughs) Who did this? I want to know who did this.
0: Sometimes, you know, you go to see concerts and there's like a really kind of weird, you're like, why is this opener here with this, you know, headliner? But that one is one of the worst I've ever heard. (laughs) Way off. Yeah. (laughs) They spent a majority of 1982 recording their third album, Porcupine, but the first version of the album was rejected by the label. They were forced to re-record all of it and add strings to the mix. The band were at each other's throats the whole time, but the album produced their first hits. The second single, The Cutter, reached number eight in the UK. Typical of most of their songs, the cutter is hard to interpret and McCulloch has refused to give any hints, but cutter is a British slang for spare change. All right. In 1985, Bring On the Dancing Horses was included as the only new song on their compilation album, Songs to Learn and Sing. Bring on the dancing horses, where everything- year it was used in pretty in pink and the dancing horses in the song are statues and McCulloch says it's about how people would rather look at statues than look into themselves when he left the group in 1988 the rest of the band tried to record with Kate Pearson and Cindy Wilson that's another what Mm. (laughs) and then found a new lead singer but not much success McCulloch rejoined in 1996 and currently he
1: and original member Will Sargent are touring with backing musicians. (laughs) Weird. That is weird. But Carrie, did I say that my favorite band on the list was Gene Loves Jezebel? You did? I meant Echo and the Bunnymen. (laughs) Their songs are so good. (laughs)
0: Well, I gotta say, when you were raving about the church, I was like, wow, I guess he liked Gene Love Jezebel more than the church, but he's going off about them. And now you're saying it's echoing
1: the <laughs> I almost said it about the church too. These three bands are it for me. I'm obsessed.
0: Yeah, this is really good stuff. Echo and the Bunny Man is definitely one that I need to get into more. I love all of their deeper stuff, like the cutter. I want to know what instrument that is that's playing. Me me me, yes. me me
1: me 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 me. Did you play that in your first episode of Dare to Be Different? Yes, I think I Ugh, did. I think that might be where I was like, who is this? I love it. Can't believe I've just been casually listening to them and not actively listening. Yeah.
0: I love that. Like gives it this whole kind of Eastern music vibe. Yes. It's so
1: good. I don't know which release it was, but they had something on Record Store Day because I know Dave's oh, co-worker was like, oh, I went and tried to find the Echo and the Bunnymen. And Dave was like, oh, we saw that there. But I'm like, no, we didn't. That was Simple Minds.
0: Yeah, when I was at the record store on Friday, they had leftover Record Store Day stuff.
1: Did you see the Simple Minds one? It was something like Live by Five, and it was like five records of like all live performances. It was a little too rich for my blood.
0: Oh, if I had even seen it, I would have picked it up to look at it, and I didn't. Although, again, okay. to tell you the truth, I was just looking to see if they had that Sheena Easton you wanted, so maybe I wasn't paying as close attention as I should have been.
1: Oh, well, thank you, but I got it, didn't I tell you?
0: Well, I didn't know at that time whether you had actually ordered oh. it or not.
1: Yeah, it's supposed to come in today. Exciting. Sheena Easton dance party at my house today, guys. (laughs) Everyone's invited.
0: Yeah, and then on Bring on the Dancing Horses, there's another, I looked specifically at the credits for it to try to figure out what that kind of flute, it sounds like a flute to me, but it's probably not. Yeah, I don't know what that is either. They had some really interesting stuff happening. I thought it was so interesting to hear they had to go back and re record this album and add strings. And then I think they pretty much used strings for the rest of their career. And it always
1: sounded wonderful. <laughs> this episode is giving me anxiety with all this infighting. <laughs> like it must be tough. You know mm-hmm. what I mean?
0: I think it is. I don't think being in a band is fun.
1: (laughs) I do also have an asterisk here in my notes to let you know that Bring on the Dancing Horses is my favorite of the whole playlist. I love it so much. Oh, good.
0: I'm glad. Yeah, that is another old favorite for me because, of course, yes, I had the Pretty and Pink soundtrack. So I've known that one Mm. for many, many years and
1: love it. The last group we are going to cover today is Peter Cetera's favorite band, (laughs) Bauhaus. Guitarist Daniel Ash formed a number of bands throughout his childhood and teen years. At times, he tried to convince his buddy Peter Murphy to join in, but Murphy was not interested in music. In 1978, when Ash's latest band broke up, he finally convinced Murphy to join his new venture only because he thought Murphy had the right look. Gotta to, to Google him. <laughs> Bauhaus played their first gig on New Year's Eve, 1978. Oh, and Bauhaus was the name of an art school in Germany from earlier in the century that lent its name to an entire art movement and style in the subsequent years. After only six weeks, they went into the studio to record some tracks, and Bella Lugosi's Dead was released as their debut single. All of the labels they shopped it to wanted them to cut the nine-and-a-half-minute song down to single length, but they refused. Finally independent label Small Wonder agreed to release it as is
0: White on white trash black back on the rack The Lugus is dead, the bats have left the bell tower, the victims have been bled with velvet lines, the black box the is
1: dead. Although this song is an absolute classic of goth rock, Daniel Ash says that other songs recorded in the session were power pop or ska reggae, and that the band was trying to find its voice. The single would stay on the UK independent charts for two years, and it got a lot of airplay from Carrie's boo John Peel <laughs> on BBC Radio 1.
0: Joe, I have to break in here and ask you,
1: uh, did you know the song Bella Lugosi's Dead? Well, is this a trick question? It was in Russian Doll, season two.
0: Oh, well, yes, that's true. But before that, did you know
1: it? Yes, okay. I did. Now, I didn't know I knew it. Like, if you asked me to sing it, I would be like, I probably cannot. Uh huh. But I knew it when I heard it on the playlist. I was like, oh, yeah, this is one I've heard many times in my life.
0: It's interesting to me. This is a song that was also like that I've known since I was a child because...
1: Too young to know. Yeah. We're
0: going to mention it further on. But this is one that I saw The Hunger when I was way too young to
1: see that Was it on HBO? (laughs)
0: No, actually, it was like my friends. I remember it was like in fifth or sixth grade. And we heard about this movie, The Hunger, that had lesbian <sighs> vampires, and we were desperate to what? watch it. So my friends and I rented it and watched it at a sleepover. <laughs> so <laughs> don't remember much about The Hunger, but I remember the song, and I loved the song. So there you go. Yeah. Is there
1: anything else you want to tell me? <laughs> you know, I will say for this song, though... Me and my husband listened to it, you know, probably three or four times this week. Mm-hmm. We agreed with those record labels. Yeah,
0: there's a good single length version in there for sure. I mean, it does go on too long, but then the nine and a half minute version has its
1: merits too. It does. I mean, it, it is good. It's mm-hmm. it's a good song. Yeah. The band released four albums between 1980 and 1983, and they broke onto the US dance chart in 1981 with the song Kick in the Eye. It must be the lesson and deep inside. It must be the lesson so we it, it peaked at number 29 on the dance chart and 59 in the UK. The group's biggest hit was a cover of the classic Bowie song "Ziggy Stardust," which peaked at number 15 in the UK, and it led to an appearance on Top of the Pops in July of '82. Came on so loaded, man. Well hell and snow white ham. Now where were the spiders? While the flies tried to tweak our halls. Carrie, did you like the Ziggy Stardust song? I
0: thought it was fine. This is kind of one of those songs to me that you can't improve on the original, so I try, but
1: it was fine. Yeah, it just stuck out to me of all the songs on the playlist, you know, that we discussed. I'm like, this doesn't sound like anything we've been listening to for the last hour. You yeah, know? that's true. Kind of jarring. Yes. <laughs> in early 1983, the band filmed a performance of "Bella Lugosi's Dead" for inclusion in the vampire movie, The Hunger but the final cut of the scene focused solely on Peter Murphy. This, along with the fact that Murphy acquired a long bout of pneumonia and didn't contribute much to the band's fourth album, led to significant tensions and the decision of the group to disband in mid-1983. They performed for the last time together a week before their final album was released. Murphy pursued a solo career, and Ash formed Tones and Tales and then Love and Rockets with the rest of the members of Bauhaus minus Murphy. (laughs) Eventually, the group would reunite in total many times over the years. They released a single in March 2022 that each of the four members had separately recorded during COVID.
0: Very interesting. I meant to listen to that and I didn't, but I'm going to check that out and see what it sounds like. It's crazy to me to think about Daniel Ash and his impact, you know, Tones and Tales and then Love and Rockets. Those are two great bands as well.
1: I've never heard of Tones and Tales in oh, my really?
0: life. Oh, really? I yeah. can't think of the name of the song, but there's definitely a song by them you know. Go by Tones and Tales. It's like a fun kind of kinetic song. But have you ever heard Peter Murphy's solo stuff?
1: I have not. Okay.
0: I'm going to tell you, you have to listen to this song called Cuts You Up. By Peter Murphy, one of his solo singles, and then after you listen to it, you tell me if you get any vibes from it. Okay, and then I'll let you know what I what I think of every time I hear "Cuts You Up." You know, after I discovered Bella Lugosi's Dead, I tried to get into more of their stuff, and it just never took. But Bella Lugosi's Dead is obviously a classic. Kick in the Eye, I thought it was pretty good too.
1: I did like that song. Yeah, it was a little different from Bella Lugosi's Dead. It was a little jolt.
0: Yeah, that's what it was crazy to think that one band put out those two different songs.
1: Uh, yeah,
0: that's great. I love that. Yeah, that was our coverage of Cruel World, and you can tune in on Saturday if you're not at the festival to Dare to Be Different on Charlie Sadie's Attic noon eastern on saturday where i will be playing uh, a full hour of music by the bands playing at girl world so you'll hear some great ones from echo and the Bunnymen and all the other bands we covered joe it sounds like you found a lot of new music to get
1: into and i'm happy about that i'm very happy makes me wish i was going to cool world <laughs> i know for real I'd love to see how the sales of eyeliner spike <laughs> in that area next week, right? Can we get a chart?
0: Yep, yep. That's it for this week. Next week, Joe, we will be bringing a review of the Mixtape Tour. It's
1: finally happening. I know,
0: exactly. We will be together to see the Mixtape Tour.
1: And in case you don't know, it's got New Kids on the Block, Rick Astley, Salt-N-Pepa, and En Vogue. I kind of thought they would add someone else, but not happening.
0: I thought so too, but it'll be fun. We're going to have a good time.
1: Oh, yeah. And I talked about the format, and I hope they keep it for this one. You know, how they perform, and they just weave in and out and do their different things. It's great.
0: Yep. I hope they do that too, yeah. All right, Joe, you get to take us out this week.
1: Well, I would just like to say to the listeners, thank you for listening, and stay safe, and be kind, and summer's coming. That's great news, huh?
0: I'm into it.
1: (laughs) That is it. So thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.